Hey everyone, welcome back to a new video. Before we get into the stories, I just wanted to mention that this is a really dark video. From kidnappings to murders to mentioning of rape, there's a lot of dark stuff in this video. And if you want to avoid it altogether, I completely understand. Story number two and story number four actually mention rape. The stories don't involve that, but it does mention it. All that being said, if you have your own scary story that you might want to send to have me read it here on the channel, you can do so by sending it to southerncannibal.com. All that being said, if you're ready to get into the stories, let's begin. Hello, I'm a 15-year-old girl with a bad relationship with sleep. I have a wretched sleep schedule and I often stay up until daybreak. In April, my house is broken into in the middle of the night by two men, and I'm really glad I was awake to hear them. I think it's important to note that my room is just in the middle of my house. I can hear everything in the house, even through a closed door. This includes my basement. The night my house was broken into, I was awake in my room, partly because I couldn't sleep and partly because I was waiting on my brother to get home from work. It was around 11.30pm when I heard noises from somewhere in my house. I assumed that it was just my brother getting home early, so I checked my phone for a door lock notification as we have electronic locks, but I didn't see any. The last time the door was locked was earlier that evening when my brother left for work, so I just chalked it up to me just hearing things. Maybe about 30 minutes later, I heard something again, but this time it came from the floor vent in my room. In that moment, I got closer to the vent to listen. I felt what I could only describe as the feeling of wind getting knocked out of your lungs. When I leaned down to the vent, I then heard a couple of low whispers, and I felt sick to my stomach. When I then realized that the alarm wasn't on because we left it off, so that my brother can come in without disturbing us. The voices only got clearer, and they were starting to move around the laundry room. I held my breath, and as silently as I could, I crept across the hall to my parents' room. I woke them up, and I told them someone was in the house in the laundry room. My dad had asked me how I knew that, and I said that I could hear them through the vents. My parents called the police, and they arrived to find two men on the first floor, searching through our things. Both of these men had knives and a gun on them. One even admitted that they were planning on killing us once they robbed us. A couple of the officers stayed with us to watch for my brother to come home, and we made sure the whole house was clear. Since then, we've installed deadbolts on every door that leads to the outside. We mostly did it because of Bine and my mom's paranoia over the incident. I do still stay up at night sometimes to listen to the house out of fear that I might not hear something unusual again. Now even in the daytime, I jump if I hear someone speak after a long period of silence. I'm trying my best to get over it, but that attempted robbery was one of the most traumatic things I've ever experienced. And to be honest, it pains me to think what might have happened if I'd actually went to bed early that night.
born and raised in Rhode Island. I moved to Massachusetts the previous year when I was 19. Single and working a full-time job. Most weekends I came home to go see my friends and to do laundry at my parents' house. On this particular day, it was at the end of the weekend and I decided to stop at Beach Pond and do some fishing before heading back to Massachusetts. Beach Pond is in western Rhode Island and straddles Connecticut with the state line bisecting the lake. It's a very rural area on the Rhode Island side with large tracts of protected state forest. It was mid-afternoon when I arrived and the small park was completely desolate as I parked my car in the dirt lot and proceeded to fish just a few feet away. Route 165 was a few hundred feet to the south and I had a clear view of the cars driving between the two states. Before long, I watched a small car approach from the Connecticut side, turn left into the parking area, and pull up right next to my car. A young man got out. He looked to be a few years older than me. I was 20 at the time, and he proceeded to walk to the edge of the woods, about 50 feet behind his car, which was about 75 feet from me. Curiously and a bit apprehensively, I kept an eye on him as he stood motionless with his hands in his pockets for at least five, maybe ten minutes, just staring at the ground. Then he walked over to me and immediately started talking with some small talk, asked about the fishing, introduced himself, and then shook my hand and he asked if I could spare a couple of dollars for gas. I told him that I really couldn't, and that I had to drive back to Massachusetts about a hundred miles away. He told me that he didn't even think he had enough gas to make it to a gas station. I then asked rhetorically, You're from Connecticut, right? Yeah, I am. He replied, Well, why did you drive to Rhode Island if you don't have enough gas to get back? I don't know. I just really like it here. Then I asked, well, what were you doing over there in the woods? Oh, I don't know. Just looking around. Standing right next to me on my left, we talked for another 30 minutes or longer. I clearly remember some of the other things we talked about and feeling sorry for him. He and I had both just recently broken up with our girlfriends, and I told him how mine had moved to Florida just a few months ago, and that I had just visited her, and it was clear we were no longer a couple. He related a similar story about recently going to Florida with his girlfriend and having a big fight and breaking up. I remember him saying that he did something really stupid while in Florida and that his girlfriend's father passed away while they were there. I asked him what he did, but he said he'd rather not get into it and that she broke up with him because of it. Then he told me something that really struck me and it's one of the reasons I never forgot about meeting him. I asked him if he liked to fish and he replied no, that he had never gone fishing before because he never had time growing up. He told me how he grew up on a farm and worked seven days a week, how he never really had any friends and never played sports. So I asked him about the farm. So did you grow corn or something? And he replied, No, chickens. It was an egg farm. He proceeded to tell me about working ever since he was a young child seven days a week on a farm in Brooklyn, Connecticut. I told him I had never heard of Brooklyn, Connecticut, just the one in New York, 
but that I used to live in Brooklyn, Massachusetts. He went on to tell me that he went to college but no longer raised chickens and that the farm had been sold. I told him about my job and my trip to Florida. Our conversation went on for some time when he suddenly then says, I have an idea, and quickly walked to his car. Curiously, I watched him go through the trunk of his car, rummaging around like he was looking for something. I asked, Um, what are you looking for? Something that I could sell you for gas money. He replied. He then walked over to me with a road flare. Will you give me two dollars for this? I really can't. I replied and proceeded to open my wallet and then show him that all I had was seven dollars. I gotta get gas myself and have a really long drive home, I said. Well, you know, that's okay. I understand. Take it anyway. You never really know when you're gonna break down on the road. He said, handing me the flare. No, I really can't. I told him, but he just insisted. So I took the small orange tube and I put it in my tackle box, where it remained for many years. Soon I needed to leave, and my new friend walked with me to my car. Packing up, I asked him, What are you going to do? Oh, I'm not worried. Someone will come eventually. He replied, pulling out of the dirt lot. I remember looking at him one more time, feeling sorry I couldn't help him as we waved to one another. Over the ensuing years, I would periodically remember the strange chance encounter from time to time, probably due to the road flare that was perennially in my tackle box, but never thought much about it. Then one night, some 20 years later, I was watching a TV documentary about a serial killer on death row in Connecticut. The show included interviews with doctors and detectives, and the man himself as he described the killings. Nothing triggered my memory until a picture flashed on the screen showing the killer the day he was arrested, June 29th, 1984. Suddenly a wave of recognition came over me, and the hair on my head stood on end. Then a picture of his car flashed on the screen, and my brain became flooded with all the memories from that day at Beach Pond, two decades earlier. The Connecticut license plate, the large glasses he was wearing, watching him rummage through the trunk of his car, Stammering for words, I tried to tell my wife about how I met this guy many years earlier, but I'm not sure how coherent I sounded. I couldn't believe what was happening, and I jumped off the couch and ran to the basement. There in my tackle box was the road flare he gave me that day so long ago. Dizzy with the realization that I met and talked to at length with a serial killer years ago was unbelievably stunning. As it turns out, just two months earlier, in April 1984, Michael Ross raped and murdered two 14-year-old girls right there in the dirt parking lot where I met him. I have no doubt the location where they gasped their last breaths was where I saw him standing at the edge of the woods. His final victim was murdered in Connecticut in June 13, 1984, and from that timeline, I can construct based on my trip to Florida in May 1984 I believe that I met him just days before his last murder. It's absolutely chilling knowing that I met and talked to a serial killer.
Hey everyone, apologies for the brief interruption from the stories, but I want to thank today's sponsor ShipStation for sponsoring today's episode. Sometimes you can get by doing things the hard way without realizing it, but when you're running a business, doing things the hard way means you're holding yourself and your business back, and ShipStation gives e-commerce sellers an easier way to manage their shipping, so you can take all that energy that goes into managing orders, choosing carriers, and printing labels and use that to grow your business. It's no wonder ShipStation's already trusted by over 100,000 sellers. I really love ShipStation personally because it really does all the legwork for you. It's really great for people who have their own Etsy shop, Instagram store, and much more. Another cool thing is you also get deeply discounted shipping rates that are normally only reserved for Fortune 500 companies. So they also help out the little guys too. ShipStation is a magic but it will make your shipping stress disappear. Sign up using promo code CANNIBAL for a free 60-day trial today at ShipStation.com and start breathing easier with every shipment. That's two whole months of stress-free shipping, and it's free to try. Just go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and type in CANNIBAL. ShipStation. Make ship happen. This is a true story. It happened to my family, and it involved my firstborn son, who was just a couple of months away from his eighth birthday. He was in the second grade at the time. We were living in Tacoma, Washington at the time. I must admit that it forever changed my life, especially as my role as a mother. It's been 27 years since this occurred, but it still haunts me to this day. A little bit of backstory to put these events into perspective. January of 1995 was a really traumatic month for our family. My son up to this point had been walking to and from his bus stop. The stop was a block and a half away from our house. The walk was a small hilly walk, down to in the morning and up in the afternoons. An elderly man from the Korean grocery store across the street was brutally murdered. I could see the shop from our bathroom window, and we survived our first earthquake as well. So, you can see that this was a traumatic month from the start. My son was used to traversing through the alleyway that ran between the back of our houses on our street and the back of the houses on the next street. We were so used to this then it had become commonplace, and there was not a worry in the world as to our son's safety. That is, until that fateful day in January of 1995. As usual, our day had started out in the typical fashion. I arose at 6 a.m. in the morning to begin preparing our children for school. Our second oldest was the first to leave because he was in special ed and he had to be bused across the city to the west side of Tacoma. Then our oldest son left the house and as usual, we kissed goodbye and I watched as he walked through the small housing complex we lived in and out the gate and started down the alleyway. My next oldest son, who was only four at the time, was ready to go off to preschool, while my youngest son, at the tender age of three, was still at home with mom. After I got son number three off to school, then it was a typical day for myself, my husband, and our youngest. We lived in a small complex with four small houses, each one with a fenced yard, then another gate that enclosed the small complex. At the time of this incident, my husband and I were managing the property for our landlord, 
and so we had recently rented out the house next door to us. The tenant was a sweet little old black lady with a head full of gray hair, and just as nice as can be. She would be an absolute delight to live next to, and key to what happened this particular afternoon. Now, I'm not going to go into detail of my daily routine, as that's all irrelevant. What happens next will start in the afternoon, at the usual time that I knew my oldest son would be coming home from school. I was busy in the house tending to household chores when I heard a frantic knock knocking on my front door. I opened it and saw that it was the screen door, that it was my next door neighbor, the little lady that I mentioned before. I don't remember her name now, although I'll never forget her heroic actions that day. I asked her what was wrong because she had a panicked look on her face and she was yelling at me saying that someone was trying to kidnap my son. She stepped outside and seen what was happening and then ran to us. I screamed for my husband and we ran out the front door and to our horror, a man in a white sedan was trying to grab our son and pull him into the vehicle. I was screaming and going ballistic while my husband started running towards the car, screaming, Get your fucking hands off my son! We were both just staring in horror while our son tried to get away and then the man kept moving the car up a bit and opening his door to try and block our son. Our son's back was now against the fence that surrounded the complex we lived in. At one point, he actually had his hand on our son's arm and was about to pull him into the car, when the neighbors heard the commotion and then jumped into action. Right at this point, our neighbors who lived across the alley and were drinking buddies of my husband heard the commotion, and both of them leaped over the six-foot fence sprinted around the front of the perp's car and the other one swept up our son in his arms and then hurriedly brought him to me then sang here you go mom he's safe in the meantime the man just sat there stone silent in his car not moving at all I stared into his eyes and I can tell you one thing I had never seen such dark soulless eyes as I did when I stared into the man's black eyes I shivered because it was like I was looking into the very eyes of utter darkness. The devil himself. He actually sat there long enough that we were able to get a complete physical description of the man, the vehicle, and his license plate. My neighbor lady called the police as well. Of course, before they arrived, the man finally sped off, throwing gravel and dirt up in the wake of his departure. I still shudder to this day to think what would have happened if my neighbors across the alley hadn't come to our defense. The perp would have likely gotten our son into the car, and we would have never seen him again. One other thing that really upset me is right before the man left, he pulled out a Polaroid camera, and he rapidly took a couple of shots of our son. That really creeped me out so fucking much. The police arrived soon thereafter, or I should say one police officer, who looked like he couldn't have been more than 25 to 26 years old. Definitely late 20s, and at the time, I was only in my early 30s, so not much younger than myself. He definitely looked as if he had just come out of the police academy. My advice to all police, don't send a rookie out to investigate child abduction cases or near abduction cases. That young officer eyed me skeptically and just said that I was just a hysterical mom. What the fuck? Of course I'm going to be hysterical, 
Someone just tried to abduct our son. I'm sorry, but that should have been handled by a seasoned detective. This scarred me for life, and for a long time, almost three years, I wouldn't let our son out of my sight, and I made him hold my hand everywhere we went. And obviously I went to extremes to protect my other children as well. Of course, he grew to become irritated with my overprotectiveness, as I wouldn't let him out of my sight. He was almost ten and a half years old before he finally got out of the house and away from me, and that was because of his dad. He'd finally been allowed to leave the house and ride his bike down to the corner store. At this time, though, we were no longer living at the house where the near-abduction attempt occurred. So if you think nothing bad can ever happen to you, please think again and take caution with your children. They're so precious. As I conclude this, our son is now 35 years old, happily married, and is a successful auto mechanic with his own shop and business. We no longer live in Washington State, but have moved to another state. God bless you all and take care. It really is a dangerous world out there. P.S. This is something I learned from John Walsh of America's Most Wanted, and this was before the incident happened, which is another reason why this has haunted me so much. Mr. Walsh says that once a child is abducted, it is in all likelihood that the child will be dead within a few hours after the pervert has done whatever horrific acts to the child. This way the child cannot tell anyone what has happened. I had nightmares for months after this happened, scared that I'd lose my little boy and never see him again. He would vanish in my dreams. Take care, everyone. I'm a female in my 40s who has been exercising most of my life. I actually started exercising during my early high school years in the 90s, and my choice of fitness at the time was running. I ran four to eight miles every day on a regular basis. I followed a familiar running route along a Southern California boulevard that was normally busy during the day, but almost dead quiet in the night slash early morning hours. For two miles, there was nothing open along the street. Just residential homes, a fenced off electrical power plant, and soccer fields. At the end of the two miles, there was a freeway overpass and 24-hour gas stations with the overnight attendants. I would wake up early in the morning before dawn to run this route, and there would be long stretches during my run where I would see no one on the street. My mother worried about my safety, so for her assurance, I carried a tiny can of mace with me on my keychain during my runs. It was a cool February when this happened, just before 5.30 a.m. in the morning. Because it was winter, the sun would not emerge from beneath the horizon for another hour and a half, so it was still pitch black outside, with a quiet stillness. I began my run on the boulevard, taking in the distant sounds of roaring traffic far away and the occasional bark from a neighborhood dog. I turned off my street and into the boulevard without incident, and for the first ten minutes, nothing really stood out. But then I spotted car lights ahead, and I realized there was a vehicle approaching me and slowing down. I thought it may have been newspaper deliverers, who were among the few on the road. They would often pull alongside the curb, toss the daily paper into a resident's lawn, and drive off. Fastest headlights drew closer. 
the streetlights revealed that it was an old late 1970s model, off-white pickup truck, one with a camper in the back, with a diesel engine that made a distinct idling sound as the truck slowed down. I remember a sense of fear rising up in me, wondering why this person was pulling along the curb by me. But again, I convinced myself it was just someone delivering papers. As it stopped at the curb next to me, I ran by, but I sensed that the driver was inside and watching me, although I could not see his face because of the shadows cast by the streetlight. The car remained parked on the curbside, and uneasiness settled over me, but I continued running, supposing that the best solution was to ignore the driver. Perhaps he had pulled over because he had needed to do something, such as look at a map for directions. At least, that's what I tried to convince myself. The truck now behind me pulled away from the curb and drove down the street, and for a moment, I felt a bit of relief as I figured he really had stopped for a split second before continuing on to his destination. But then, I heard it slow down again after it had driven about a hundred feet, and I then turned to see it make a U-turn and then pull up along the curb across the street from me. Once again, I knew the driver who I couldn't see was watching me. That mounted fear again, but I didn't want to appear scared, and I continued to run. The truck made another U-turn again, and once again pulled along the curb on my side of the street right in front of me. I darted across the street to get away from the truck, the fear still in the pit of my stomach. I had wondered who this person was or what they would do. And as I gained distance from the truck, I saw the driver get out of the truck briefly. It was a man, but that's all I could tell. I could only make out his leg and arm, but I didn't see his face because I was too far away. I think he got out of his truck to get a better look at me, but then climbed back in, drove away, circled around, and then drove up to me from behind again. Once again, I darted back across the street to get away from him. I remember being more aware that no one else was around. I don't know why I didn't think of running to someone's home or even turning around and going back the way I came. It was the 90s, so although cell phones were around, I didn't have one, so I couldn't call anyone. Still, looking back, I really should have done something. But being a naive teenage girl, I figured I could handle the situation. I figured that this was just some guy who wanted to flirt with me, so part of me found this to be annoying. But another part of me grew more frightened, not sure what he wanted. I just remembered thinking, if I can just make it to the freeway where the gas station is, I can get some help, and pressing forward in my run. I approached another wide intersection at the halfway point of the gas station and freeway. By now, there were no more residential homes on one side of the street, just vast soccer fields and a fenced-in electrical power plant. On the other side were darkened homes with no signs of life or of anyone being awake. As I crossed the intersection, the truck followed right behind me. Another car waiting at the intersection drove right through it once I crossed. The truck turned right and headed south in the same direction as the other car, as the driver too was going down the street. But a sick feeling in my gut told me it was a sick game, that the driver only pretended to carry on his way so that the driver in the other car wouldn't get suspicious of him following me 
and I was right. Because a minute or two later, I heard that familiar diesel engine as the truck slowed down and paced behind me. Inside, I felt terrified with fear, but I tried to mask this growing terror by showing my can of mace as I ran. I tried to make myself look confident, but inside, my stomach turned with growing fear, and my stupid idea of parading my can of mace didn't deter him. With each step in my jog, I nervously kept wondering when I would reach the freeway and the gas station, and I counted the distance, just hoping I would get closer as this man continued following me. Soon I had about four more blocks to go before the gas station. I remember counting down the city blocks, and the sense of urgency and adrenaline pushing me to run faster to get there. The driver of the truck now began calling out to me. Hey! Hey, come here! He yelled, hitting the side of his truck with his hand. He drove by, made another U-turn, and pulled up by me again. I ran across the street and onto the sidewalk, fully terrified now. But I only had two blocks to go before I reached the gas station, and I could see the last two blocks just up ahead of me. Then the driver did something that made my heart just drop. He drove past me, and then stopped his truck some 50 feet right in front of me now completely blocking my running path. He had positioned himself to jump out and grab me from my jogging path once I reached him. A dull sense of fear and nausea in the pit of my stomach washed over me, and I thought all about those alarming statistics of women who were kidnapped, raped, and murdered in the late night hours. I realized in that moment that if I didn't do something, anything, I wouldn't make it to the freeway or the gas station just up ahead and I may not even make it out alive. I quickly ran across the street again, and as the car turned around to come after me, I recalled a self-defense course that my mother and I had taken just months before. The instructor had advised us if we find ourselves in a situation where there is a would-be attacker stalking us at night, to make a lot of noise, scream, act crazy, and do anything to draw attention, as that often deters the attacker. So in that moment... I began screaming and cursing at the top of my lungs. Get the fuck away from me, motherfucker! Leave me the fuck alone! Seemingly flustered, he yelled back. All right, I will! And sped off down a small street. And this time, he never returned, and I never saw him again. As mounting as terror was, it had suddenly vanished. When he sped down that street... I just knew he wouldn't be returning, and relief washed over me. And yet, I didn't tell the police about it or anything, even after a cop car drove by minutes later. Stupid of me, I know. I was just relieved that he was gone, and I could continue with my run in peace. Still, even more creepy was the dream that I had about the encounter the very next night. In the dream, I was lying on my bed, and I could hear the diesel engine outside of my bedroom window. I knew it was him, and that I sensed he was in the house. And then in the dream, I sensed that he was standing in my doorway, then over my bed, and then he licked the inside of my mouth with his tongue before leaving. Even though this was a dream, it felt real, and this creeped me out, and only added fear to what had happened. Now my choice of fitness is weight training, and I'm actually building up my own home gym. And when I do run, 
I'm a lot more careful now.